This is the Education Gadfly Show. Nobody wants to hear about social and emotional things from two old white guys like us. Uh, <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Robert Pendicio. Welcome back to the show. It's always fun to come see the old haunt. Lo- love what you've done. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Robert is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior visiting fellow at Fordham. And he is a, what was a regular, now he's like a regular guest. And it's always fun to have you back. Thanks. I I feel like I do the podcast more now than when I used to be at Fordham full time. Do I take Mm -hmm. that personally? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, Robert. This is, this is how it goes. Okay. So Robert, as we record this, you know, your New York Mets are playing my St. Louis Cardinals in a doubleheader. So, uh, you know, after the podcast, we should both like go get some beer and, and watch it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to play hooky on Thursday. I happen to be in New York City that day and I've already bought tickets. So, um, nice. yeah, I'm looking nice. forward to it. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not a Cardinals hater, Mike. I think we've had this discussion, even though, you know, Mets fans are supposed to hate the Cardinals. I've always kind of Love the Cardinals. They're they're what I want the Mets to be, like consistently good every year. But this year, I think we've got you. I think I think well, this is a year. All right. Well, hey, and and that's right. Oh, how can anybody hate a team from St. Louis? That's just ridiculous. Just can't. Come on. It cannot. Come on. It just just because they hate the Cardinal way, and the Cardinal way is yeah, to be consistently good and to win a lot of World Series. All right, but we are not here to talk sports. You can get that in other podcasts, I understand. But we are here to talk about education reform and specifically social and emotional learning. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. Robert, I always joke, nobody wants to hear about social and emotional things from two old white guys like us. Uh, this is, uh, <laughs> in my day. Uh, but I want to have you on because you wrote a great piece for Fordham about social and emotional learning that was, uh, you know, in, in some ways, a backhanded defense, maybe, of SEL. But t- tell me about it. But basically, oh, yeah, yeah, here's yeah. a situation that there are some conservatives, including your colleague, Max Eden at AEI, who have been arguing that SEL is the next critical race theory, that it's a, a way for the left to try to indoctrinate our children. And it's going to spur a big backlash among parents, and rightfully so. And and you said, well, let's hold on. So tell us, what's your case? Well, thanks. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it was, I was thinking of Max as much as Christopher Rufo at the Manhattan Institute, who uh, I don't want to misattribute this phrase, but I think he described SEL as a so-called Trojan horse for critical race theory. And, you know, look, you've heard me say this before, Mike. I mean, I, I never want to be that guy who waves the bloody shirt and says, well, unless you've been a teacher, you can't really. But, but this is one of those instances where I think folks... And again, no disrespect to Chris Rufo, whose work I generally admire, you know, unless you have been in the classroom and seen, you know, programs being adopted and implemented, it just kind of staggers credulity to think that there is a kind of central command and control that SEL is any one thing, uh, let alone, you know, a, a Trojan horse for any one other thing. So it just kind of belies the way programs are implemented and consistently or not across, you know, 3.7 million teachers and, you know, 100,000 some odd schools. So it just seems to me like the wrong model. Now, you know, that said, and, and I think you just alluded to this, it's not like I'm an SEL fan, but my point is that there's plenty of substantial critiques of SEL that are worth considering 
without invoking the specter that it's a Trojan horse for something else. So, you know, I wrote a big mm-hmm. paper for AEI some months ago that, that raised the issue that, look, are, are we really asking too much of teachers, specifically with the, the, the growth of SEL, are, are we pushing teachers into what, what I described as a quasi-therapeutic role, asking them mm-hmm. to be not just, you know, teachers, pedagogues, but asking them to be counselors, therapists, social workers, almost clergies, clergymen. You know, at, at some point, you have to acknowledge that we, we keep putting more and more on teachers' plates, and the more things we ask them to do, the more likely they are to do those things badly. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of obvious. If you spread teachers' uh, responsibilities too thin, something's got to give, and, and I'm just not sure that there's broad agreement that SEL ought to be the central concern of public schooling. Last point, I mean, it, it just kind of raises a specter that done poorly, it can inject the state, because look, public schools are state actors, right? It can inject the state purview into uncomfortable places like, you know, student uh, attitudes and beliefs and whatnot. So I'm merely suggesting that we limit the debate to that which I think is not in dispute and uh, be conspiratorial about this. Yeah, and that all makes sense. And look, I agree with you generally on SEL as well. I'm, you know, I'm not a huge SEL fan in the way that it's being implemented in a lot of places. Now, I do subscribe to what one of our research interns uh, recently wrote for us, which was great, which was schools have no choice but to teach social and emotional skills. That's by Nathaniel Grossman. He's just Hmm. came out of the classroom himself. Like, of course, I mean, this is all, you know, yeah, you're a kindergarten teacher. Of course, you're teaching SEL. You know, that's a huge part of school. It's teaching kids, you know, how to do school and how to be in a group and, you know, not hit other kids and to share and to not run with the scissors. I mean, you know, so of course, some of this stuff has always been, you know, part of schools. And, and then, of course, there's Jennifer Frey, who's been writing great stuff for us as a Fordham fellow, who's been making the case for virtue education. That, of course, the old style of education reform that was only interested in reading and math and maybe science and history, it was technocratic, right? That's what people used to argue. And, and that because we weren't focused on the whole person, including making sure that the next generation had strong character, had strong virtue, that of course, schools, and they have no choice to, but to teach these things, even if they don't mean to, how they have enforced the rules or do not, or how they treat people, how they treat adults, you know, all of that is, is a way of, you know, implicitly or explicitly teaching values, right? So, I mean, it, so some of this stuff, whatever you want, there's some subset of SEL that of course schools have done forever and they're going to have to do forever because that's a big part of what school is, right? Well, I, I suppose, um, you know, at the risk of sounding Clintonian here, it depends on what your definition of teaching is. In other words, mm-hmm. and I think I've written about this for Fordham and elsewhere, that like every, you know, every school is a manifestation, a reflection of somebody's values. So mm-hmm. you, know, you, you can't take that out of schooling. But, but that's not necessarily the same thing as explicit teaching of those values. Look, your point is very well made that, sure, you know, every kindergarten teacher, you know, for centuries has taught, take turns, say please and thank you, etc. So that's, there is some explicit teaching. I've, I've always been of the mind, however, that SEL is really more honored in the culture than, than in the explication. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's just, mm-hmm. I've, I've become fascinated over the years with school culture, and I think that's a lot more powerful than anything we think we're teaching explicitly. You also made mention and I can't remember specifically what triggered the memory, oh, of character and virtue. Look, I've been very persuaded, and I think I cited extensively in the paper I wrote for AEI, the work of Jay Green, who wrote a paper, 
either for AEI or for Heritage some months ago that made the point about, um, look, it's really, really hard to divorce SEL from its religious and classical education underpinnings. That is mm-hmm. a particular challenge for, for lack of a better description, the secularization of SEL. In other words, I, you know, we've, we've tended to make this more about, or often make it more about performance characteristics like grit, for example, than values. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. hard. I mean, good, goodness gracious, we're, we're so divided about so many things in this country. If you want to start explicitly calling SEL values education, well, you're almost looking for a fight, right? So it's going to be really, really hard. And Jay's paper was terrific in describing the kind of the the classical and religious roots of of SEL. I know I sound like an SEL skeptic, and I guess I am, but I'm a lot less skeptical when it comes to things like having it within the, say, religious education. Like, you know, Catholic schools for years have done a terrific job on values education. It just doesn't always translate into into a secular public school setting. No, that's right. And we did this one project on SEL, which was looking at a parent survey about how people respond to different language around SEL. And you know, the basic finding was that when you describe what it is, you know, the underlying kinds of skills that schools are mostly teaching, most people are fine with it. Conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. You know, some people chafe at the term SEL, especially Republicans. People like life skills as a term, which I kind of hate personally, but that, that polled pretty well. You know, but but what we assumed going in was that conservatives would like the language around character education and that liberals would not. Well, we were right about liberals, but even conservatives didn't love that language by and large. And, I, you know, it was it's interesting. I mean, and maybe it is because of this issue around trust. You know, no, like, I think, Mike, I think you're missing something obvious with all respect. It's, it's not about whether conservatives like that stuff. It's about whose responsibility it is. You know, in well, other right. words, yes, if, yes. if the state starts to take it upon itself to dictate to my child what his or mm-hmm. her values should be, well, that's problematic inherently. That's right. And, and especially if, you know, back, look, there, there was a push for character education, you know, with Bill Bennett Bill and Bennett. back in the day right. in what, the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it was sort of some of the classic virtues and people would have, the, you know, the character of the week and probably didn't do a lot of good. There's still some of that going on out there, right? But now if you define character as, well, we're going to teach you social justice, right? This idea that wokeness has become this sort of new secular religion. Well, then you can understand right. why all kinds of parents are, are pushing back about that. And, yeah, and again, boy. back to that, that Trojan horse thing, that, that that is where, and look, Max and Chris, I mean, I'm sure they're right that there are some places uh, in some of the national groups have put out stuff that sure makes it sound like that's what they want SEL to be, is to teach the new secular religion of wokeness and social justice. And, and of course, there's going to be pushback about that. But, but that, you know, does not need to be what SEL or character or virtue education is about. No, I, I think that's right. And boy, it will be interesting. I'm making a note to myself to go back and read Bill Bennett's Book of Virtues because it would be kind of interesting mm-hmm. to read it with a, you know, 2022 set of eyes, so to speak. Because my hunch, and it's been 30 years since I've even glanced at it, my hunch is that it's predicated on the assumption that these values are non-controversial. And, and now, yeah. Yeah. isn't that a quaint notion? The, the idea that there are non-controversial values. That's a great, great way to say it. Hey, when, if you do go look at that book, let me know. Report back. Will do. All right. Hey, great to have you on, Robert. Robert Pendicio, Senior Fellow at AEI and Senior Visiting Fellow at Thomas B. Fordham Institute. I hope you'll come back on the show sometime soon. I've no, I'll never say no if you ask. All right. That sounds great. Well, hey, now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. <laughs> Thank you. 
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So Amber, since the last time we spoke, I have been to not one, but two college graduations. Uh, big, big shout out to my nieces, Abigail and Capria. On nice. Graduating college. Yeah. Had nice weather. Good weather. I somehow managed to hit two college graduations in the same weekend. Thank ah, you very much. You've, been, you've been writing some checks out, I hope. Uh, I've been uh, doing that as well. Yeah. But it was interesting. One, one at the University of Georgia, the other at the University of Notre Dame. And of course, it's, you know, can't help but compare and contrast. Right. Little did I know, Georgia claims that they, they are, and claims, I mean, I'm sure they're right, that they are the very first public university in America. They beat the University of Virginia to the punch there, Amber. Uh, I've yes. not heard that. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. I think that goes back to before the founding of the country. Somebody wow, I got a Wikipedia that, Mike. I don't uh-huh. know. <laughs> so, there you go. Little factoid. All right. Well, my nephew's graduating from high school, so it's graduation season. Really exciting mm-hmm. for these kids. And hey, they're going to find jobs in this economy, right? Uh, they are finding jobs, and it is boy. They th- this this class really nailed it because, of course, last year was still. Pandemic time, knock on wood that we're past that. And of course, by next year, we'll be in a recession. So, yeah. you know, cl- class of 2022 nailed it. Uh, uh, lucky them. A little roller coaster, but we're, we're riding it. Yeah. Well, and of course, it was interesting to say, you know, how, how much did they mention the pandemic? My, my sense was some. They try not to make that the focus. Focus. But, uh, yeah. That's of right. course, it had a big impact on Yeah, ab- absolutely did. And, and still, for hiring and everything else. All right. Well, what you got for us this week? We have a recent study that examines how much teachers know about their retirement plans. Pensions isn't always the, you know, the most exciting, but I thought this was a neat little quiz that Josh McGee and colleagues at the University of Arkansas did. He gave them what amounted to a five-question pop quiz to a nationally representative sample of teachers on the RAND American Teacher Panel, which we know and love. Uh, The questionnaire was fielded in February, March of 2020. About 5,500 teachers completed it. And then the analysts cross-referenced their responses with the retirement plans of their respective states to actually check their answers. The topics and results are as follows. Question number one, do they know their retirement plan type? So this is pretty basic. They were asked to identify the type of plan in which they participated based on a short description, traditional pension, 401k, cash balance, et cetera. Just 56% of respondent teachers correctly identified the type of plan they were enrolled in. Seemed a little low to me. The vast mm-hmm. majority of U.S. teachers are enrolled in traditional pensions, and those answering that way were overwhelmingly correct. Mm-hmm. Yet nearly half of those that picked one of the other three models were almost always wrong. Uh, but when they looked at it by experience level, not surprisingly, the late career teachers were more likely to identify correctly their retirement mm-hmm. plan type versus the early career guys. Question two was retirement age. Teachers were asked about the age at which they'll become eligible for full retirement. All right, Mike, I'm not quizzing you, but all right, how many do you think got that correct? Oh, gosh. I w- Yeah, again, I would think they would know like, well, actually, it's a little confusing because you said age, not not years of experience. Right. right. Age at which they become okay. eligible so for full that's, retirement. That's a little tricky because, yeah, that yeah, you know, I'm thinking they might know it's 30 years, but sometimes it's like, or... 65, whichever comes first. <laughs> That's right. All right. So I'm going to say it's only half got that one. <laughs> oh, my. Less than one in five. I think it was 18%, something got close it right. to 18 yeah. to 20. Got the exact age correct, yep. but yep. a little over a third were able to identify the age plus or minus a year. So, oh, well, yeah. that's pretty you good. Got about a third. All right. And then they were asked about Social Security. Uh, we know that in some states, the laws are such that teachers do not participate in Social Security. 
The good news is that a large majority of teachers correctly identified whether they participate in the program. That was about 86% got that right. However, when you ask them who's contributing to their Social Security, whether it's them, the teacher, their employer, or both, there was confusion there. For instance, among teachers who are covered by Social Security, just about 40% correctly stated that they and their employer both pay into the system. All right, Q4. Then they're asked, okay, how long are your benefits going to last? Multiple choice. As long as I live, for a fixed time, until the money runs out or other. Teachers fairly, uh, pretty well. 68% answered correctly, likely because most of them are in traditional pensions and they know it promises a lifetime annuity. Uh, 81% of late career teachers got it right, just 55% of early careers. But oh, by the way, I mean, until the money runs out, it's a correct, <laughs> exactly. it's a correct answer. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a trick question. Come on. Yeah. I mean, we all are like, well, there's not going to be Social Security for us by the time we graduate. And uh, the teachers are feeling right. the same way. Right. I, I, think it was, mm. I think it was a trick question. That's a trick question. All right. Uh, last one, contribution rates. Teachers struggled to identify, and this was really a tricky question, the percentage of a salary that they and their employer contribute to retirement benefits, excluding mm-hmm. Social Security. On the employee side, only 2% stated their own contribution rate correctly, mm-hmm. the amount deducted from their paycheck. Less than a quarter got the employee rate right within one percentage point. As for the employer rate, again, no teacher correctly stated it. Just 15% came within one point. But, you know, then they explain, you know, they're actually asking them to identify the fraction of an employer's contribution to the normal cost, mm-hmm. not to what goes to paying down the unfunded liabilities of the state. Mm-hmm. So, my goodness, you know, obviously that's a challenge. So I, I, I say that was a trick question. They had a nice discussion, but the end of the uh, the discussion was that, you know what, these they thought some of these questions were pretty basic, especially the plan type, but younger teachers particularly were having a really hard time answering these questions. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to, you know, uh, explain this a little bit better so they could make sure they're saving enough. But then I got to thinking, you know, um, lots of these plans are backloaded. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, if teachers, if new teachers really knew, <laughs> it might, um, might get them a little riled up. So they, they would be angry at <laughs> certainly that is true. Yeah. You know, when I saw this study, uh, you know, what I thought about it was, boy, you know, I wish I knew how the general population would answer these questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got right. to assume that I don't think teachers are doing any worse than anybody else on these right. questions. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, the answers are different for the general population. Many more people would be in a 401k style plan right. if they have something right that they'd be in social security or rather than something else like this. That's right. And, and yeah, these, these new teachers, right. Maybe they are saying to themselves, I'm not planning on staying and teaching my whole career. So I'm never getting that money anyway. So I just don't even pay right. attention to it. Right. right. Like if I leave after three or five years, no big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. You know, every time I see some article and there was something the other day I saw on predictive analytics um, on, in some other field, I think, boy, is there some more we could be doing in education on predictive analytics? And so, hey, Dan Goldhaber, if you're listening, uh, you know, here's one. Could we predict which teachers are likely to leave, say, you know, within five years? And maybe one data point would be to do these kinds of quizzes and those teachers that do not know anything about their retirement plans, you know, maybe are indicating that they're the ones that are more likely to leave because uh, that that's their plan, whether they their plan. Right, right. Uh, Who knows? 
I mean, but you're right. When you're younger, are you really thinking about this? I don't know. I I guess I was saving maybe 20 bucks a month or something as a new teacher. Um, It wasn't, it wasn't a lot, but, but yeah, I don't think a lot of, I don't think a lot of my colleagues were, who were new like me were Mm -hmm. talking too much. It wasn't a discussion in the, in the faculty lounge. Right. Right. But you certainly knew what your starting salary was. And I did. And that is an argument for front loading, you know, teacher pay more, right? Trying to get right. those teacher salaries up on the front end, uh, you know, and, and trying to make that work by maybe less uh, on that back end. But hey, you yeah. know who doesn't like that? The unions, because you know who, <laughs> you know who pays attention to the union? Oof, I veteran do. teachers, yes, and retired teachers. teachers. That's yeah. it. Yeah, you know where gotta- the AFT, you know where the United Federation of Teachers of New York has an office. Florida. Yeah. So, I get it. It's a big problem, Mike. We keep talking about how we need to revise pensions and we seem to know how to do it, but the politics of this really mm. gnarly. Oof. It is. It is. They are very gnarly. Do people still say gnarly. I don't know. Gen X people do. Sure. We're allowed to. All right, Amber. Good stuff. All right. But that is, of course, all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.